How many of you here are from Florida? Yeah, I wouldn't raise my hand either. Okay. <laughs> I see you. You're in my community group. Okay. Um, you know, we went into this probably as well-educated as any town I've ever seen. Knoxville is amazing in this. Isn't that true? I mean, people listen to sports radio all week. Facebook is blowing up. I mean, everybody tweets about it. You read the sports page. You're listening to national news. Uh, game day is on our campus. I'm, I'm driving by ahead of time just to see if I can see what's going on. You know, I mean, we are very educated people. And when I'm walking out of the stadium and everybody's talking about the same thing. It's the same thing we've been talking about all week. And everybody knows. I thought, you know, there's this lady walks past me. I don't know. She's from, like, out in Kodak or Cosby or somewhere. And she's, rah, 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 and I think, she knows. This housewife, she knows, you know, she works at Dollar General out there. So she knows what Dooley should do. We all do. Everybody understands, you know, because we pay attention and because it's important to us. Uh, I don't know that that's true in every town. We, we visit some places and, and people think, yeah, we've got a team, you know, but I really don't know who the quarterback is. And I don't, everybody here knows. How many of you went to the game last night? How many of you who didn't go watched it on television? Okay, I think that's probably true all over town. Now, one of the things that happens that you know, is so influential is because we take the time and we listen and we pay attention. And that helps us understand uh, kind of what's going on. Now, I want you to take out just a sheet of paper, either your handout or a scrap piece of paper. And what I'm about to do, I'm not going to... Jesus juke you, okay? I just honestly am going to ask you a, a question, and I don't mean for this to be manipulating anything. Ooh, pastor's going to, you know, I, I see where he's headed already. Just think, this week, let's begin last Sunday, not counting the scriptures that we've put, you know, up on the screen for you. Uh, how much time did you spend just reading the Word, all right? Just reading the Bible. And I, I tell you what, I'm going to give you listening, if you did it in a focused way, because I listen to Scripture sometimes on my app on my phone, you know, and I think it's pretty good. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you count that if, if you were really listening and not just had it on in the background while you're brushing your teeth, okay? So how much time last Sunday, just write Sunday or whatever, just put a number, and we're going to do a column Okay, so put that number up there, five minutes, ten minutes. If you did ten minutes or more, you read more than about 80, 90 percent of the Christians in America. You read 100 percent more than just, you know, average folks in, in, in our country. All right, what about Monday? Monday, 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 I had a softball game, I had this, I did this, okay, and I spent, you know, think back. I know it's kind of hard to remember sometimes, but uh, just... Give it your best shot, your best, most honest estimate. And no, don't peek at your, you know, your partner who's ever sitting around you's paper. Okay? Just, this is just for you. Under that, put the next day. Tuesday, let's say I had staff meeting, I had an appointment, had another meeting, and then I had deacons meeting that night. Okay, how much time that day? Wednesday, same thing. Under that, how much time did you spend in the Word? Just come up with a number. Eight minutes, five minutes, seven minutes. Okay, let's see, Wednesday, I had three, one, two, three appointments at Cafe that night. I read the scripture from Cafe, so I'm going to count that. Um, so I have a little advantage twice a week. Uh, I, get to, I get to count that, those verses, and that takes me a couple of minutes, so I'm going to factor those in. 
just add it up. Thursday, I start off the day in Bible study uh, with some guys, and then, okay, just figure it out through the day. Friday, Saturday, I'm betting you didn't spend a lot of time yesterday, uh, but you may have. Uh, okay, now draw a line under that, add it up. If you can't add those figures, uh, get out your phone and use your calculator function, okay? Um, now, take that number and put it over to the side. Um, because what I want to talk to you about is just the influence and the power. Uh, sometimes it is subtle and sometimes it is dramatic, the influence of the Word of God in your life and what, what a difference that it can make. That was the kind of the topic or the idea that David had in mind in his very last conversation with his son Solomon. And that's what we're going to look at today in 1 Kings. Solomon um, is the anointed king. David is about to pass away. And he has this opportunity, not everybody gets this chance, to say goodbye and to have some final last words. And what he chooses to say, you know, it's made me think this week, what would I say if I know I've got this chance uh, to, to say goodbye? What do I want my children, the next generation of people, to have with them? What do, I want to, what do I want that to be? What would you want that to be? Well, David was very specific and very purposeful about it. And I think if I were to sum up what David's intent was, it would be with this little phrase. We practice daily what we believe. All the rest is just religious talk. I want to say that again. We practice daily what we believe. All the rest is just religious talk. Would you say that with me? We practice daily what we believe. All the rest is just religious talk. The Bible is really more than one book. This confused me, and if you're not used to reading Scripture, uh, you may think, wow, I just don't get the Bible. It talks about this, and then it jumps over and talks about that. It just seems like it's different books within a book. Well, actually, you're right. It is. It's 66 books. There are 39 books in one section called the Old Testament and 27 in another section called the New Testament. They're split in half by the life, uh, the, the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Around 223 A.D., we started calling it the Bible. We'd collected all these scriptures and, and, and from all these manuscripts, we put them together, and it was agreed on. It was sort of anointed by the Holy Spirit, and, and we have the Scriptures. We have the Bible. So it's really not just one book. It's really 66 books. It's 40-plus it's authors over 1,500 years, originally in three different languages. Uh, it is an amazing, an amazing uh, a feat, an amazing thing that has been put together. Oldest manuscript we have was written in about 100 B.C. That's incredible. Do you know we have 30,000 manuscripts available from Scripture to draw from? That's 30 times more manuscripts, more literary evidence for the Scriptures than any other book ever written in the history of man. 30 times. It's, it's been a book that's validated again and again and again. Um, 
this book has so influenced my life. When I first began to be curious about spiritual things, I didn't have a Bible. So I began to roam around my parents' house, and in a closet on the top shelf, I'll never forget this, I found this Bible. It was green with gold, you know, fancy decorations on it. It was padded, okay? You could squash it, and it would kind of come back. It was, a, it was a translation called the Living Bible. Uh, and, and I pulled that down, and I began to read Scripture. And it fascinated me. Now, I went from that point to just immersing my life. Gradually, I, I began to pay more and more attention. I bought a little New Testament. I still have it. It's at home in my nightstand. I should have brought it today. It fit in my back pocket. It's really small. And it was like... You know, if, if the Word of God is a sword, it was like my pocket knife, you know. It's, it was handy. I could always pull it out. And on my first job, I would actually go sit in my car, and I'd pull that out, and I'd read it. I'd go to the men's room just to read a few verses. I began to get really addicted, and all the behaviors that went along with addiction, I displayed. I began to, you know, I'd be sitting at, I was a layout artist for an advertising agency, and I'd begin to kind of get that jittery feeling, you know, and think, man, I need a fix. I need a hit, so I would think, hey, I'm going to slip in the restroom, and I'd go in and think, oh, oh man, yeah, and I would, it, was, it was just like crystal meth for my heart and soul. That is a terrible, terrible illustration, but um, I was just so, and I find even now, you know, I start getting too far away from it, and I can, I can feel that thing. I, I think, man, I need, I need some word, I need some word, you know, and you got to be careful because it can start innocently. You can begin with just a few verses, and you think, I can quit any time I want. But once you begin reading it and absorbing it, it gets in. It gets in your system, and pretty soon, you're reading like whole paragraphs and chapters and books. Then you go hardcore. You start memorizing Scripture, and, you know, and you're just, you're done. You're over the edge. Because you, you, it's, something happens to you in subtle ways, and in blatant, obvious, dramatic ways. It changes your life. God has used these 66 books to transform who I am. One of the last papers I wrote, and I was never so glad to get it done, it was about 120 pages, and it was on uh, one of these oldest of manuscripts that we found, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran Caves and back in the 1940s, just the history and authorship of Isaiah. <laughs> it was as dry as toast. Uh, you know, I let someone else read the paper, and they go, oh, my goodness, this is, you know, I'm, I just, I'm starting to fall asleep just looking at the paper. You know, I go, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be because it was very technical. So I've had this broad experience with the Bible and with the difference uh, that it makes in our lives. But what I found out is if I just read this, these books, if I read Matthew's books and I read Moses' books and I and I read those, and then I, and then I put that away, uh, it doesn't do anything. It, it's when it permeates. It's, it's when that, that I'm inundated with the Scripture to the point that it starts coming out in my daily life, when it begins to affect the way that I think and act and behave and talk. Things happen. Things happen. I believe... This is what David knew. He had known it since he was a teenager. He had been writing these songs and, 
and, and these poems these, and these psalms, all of his life, the Word of God had affected him in a tremendous way. There's a Scottish theologian, his name is Thomas Boston. He, he once said that our present existence is just a short preference to a long eternity. This is just a short preference to a long eternity. The, the thing is, the, the bottom line for me, what hit me, is when I began to understand more and more Scripture and the impact that it was having, because it doesn't just happen and you're unaware of it. At some point, you begin to think, oh my goodness, this is changing me. This is changing my life. And now it's even beginning to change people around me. The first thing that drew me to Scripture was, was just this one part of it, this one idea within Scripture. There are... 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. 300 prophecies about who the Christ would be. And when I began to study and just read, and I would find one of those, and then I would jump over to Jesus. You know, I go from Old Testament and, and go over to the New Testament and look at that and think, check, he got that one. And then go back. I thought, it's absolutely, literally... <laughs> Literally impossible that anybody could do that, could fulfill 300 of those. Jesus did. He fulfilled all of those. That, that's what got me thinking. That's what got me started. I thought, anybody that can do that, anybody that did that, and most of those were made where he could not do anything to manipulate those. He couldn't say, uh, I've got to be born in this certain town. And I've got to be in this family, and I've got to be here, and I've got to have it happen like this. He couldn't arrange for any of that. That got my attention. That began to draw me to the Scripture, and that's why I found myself one day looking through my parents' closet to try to find a Bible. Now, the thing that, that came to me is kind of a regretful thing, kind of a sad, happy, sad thing. I realized how much of my life I had wasted. I began to look back and see specific moments, months, and even years where I had wasted so much time and money and burned through relationships and jobs and people and, certain, and all of this. And I thought, if, only, if I had known the Word of God and I had applied that to my life, in each one of those, it would have taken a completely different course and a completely different conclusion. It's the Word of God. And this is the wisdom that David wants to give his son Solomon. The old king is on his deathbed. It's the end of an era. Acts 13.36 says that, that David served God in his generation. David served God. And by the grace of God, he had established this capital city that would stand at the center of history thousands of years later, actually, and started a dynasty that would save the world. But even King David died. And there were some things he wanted to say before he died in peace that would help his son. So he, he has this final farewell address. And within that, it comes in two parts. The first part runs from like verse 2 to 4, and it mainly addresses Solomon's soul. I mean, his spiritual life, uh, the things a king needs to think about if he's going to be in this kingdom of God. 
The second part runs from verse 5 to 9, and it addresses the security of Solomon's kingdom. You know, David, David speaks to him as a father to his son, but he also speaks to him as one king who's you know, leaving the scene to the new king coming in. It's, it's political, it's national, and he's saying, okay, here's some things you've got to keep in mind. So he addresses those, uh, and he tells him, here's some things you need to fix, here's some things you need to continue to do, here's some old scores you need to settle with some people. And as Solomon steps into this role, as he takes the throne, David told him, there are three people that you need to deal with. This, this um, it's kind of really interested me that David would take the time on his deathbed to say, uh, I'm going to mention three specific people. Two are enemies and one is a friend. The first one, Solomon says, has to do with a guy named Joab. Joab had long served as the commander of David's armies. He was an effective military leader. Uh, he was a hero in many ways. But on occasion, he used his power in ungodly ways to advance himself, his own career, his own agenda. Joab had a way of making people disappear. There was blood on his hands. Specifically, what comes to David's mind are two people, Abner and Amasa. Joab saw these two guys as potential rivals for the top spot in the military at that time, so he just put them to death. And in doing so, you know, pushed his own, you know, uh, agenda, his, you know, his own interest ahead of the king, ahead of God's plan, ahead of the kingdom. David, it was just all about him. He killed these two guys to make sure he got the position. David rightly regarded Joab as a potential threat to Solomon. He's not just being vindictive, particularly because Joab had sided with Adonijah during his rebellion in his bid for David's throne. So it was up to Solomon, and he tells him, it's up to you, you know, you're a wise man, uh, I'm going to trust you to do this, but I'm going to advise you, do not let this, this man die of natural causes. He just says it like that. Do not let his gray head go down to Sheol without blood on it. Get my meaning? It's almost, can you just picture Marlon Brando? <laughs> it's really like the godfather sitting there going, this guy doesn't, you know, he, he, he makes sure that he deals with him there. Another guy is Barzillai. His family should receive just the opposite treatment. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7, the writer says this, but deal loyally with the sons of, of Barzillai, the Gileadite. David said, and let them be among those who eat at your table. Let them eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. When, when times were hard, when the nation was falling apart, there was a desperate crisis in the history of the kingdom. David's son, Absalom, had rebelled against him, had plunged Israel into a civil war, and as a result, David and his loyal servants had to run for their lives. They fled into the wilderness. They're out of supplies. They're tired. They're hungry. Uh, things do not look so good. This guy, Barzillai, and other wealthy men came to the king's rescue. They brought supplies. Second Samuel 17 tells us they brought supplies to him, and they brought food, and, uh, and they saved them. And unlike Joab, who's looking out for himself, this guy is thinking about the kingdom. He's thinking about the king. 
And it was costly. It was, there was a personal sacrifice involved in every way you can think about it. Uh, but he came through. David says, that guy, you need to, that's the kind of people you need to surround yourself with. Solomon also had Shemia to deal with. He was another enemy. Uh, he belonged to the house of Saul, and he, and he held this grudge against David for taking David of Saul's throne. Even after David had been anointed king, uh, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 19 that David's walking through this place, and this guy just begins to, to yell at him. And it's not just smack talk or trash talk like Florida fans and Tennessee fans before and especially after the game. Um, if you're on the receiving end of that, you know how that felt. Well, this guy's just cursing David, and he's saying all these obscene things, and he's just yelling at him, this is the king. This is the king. And this guy's just cursing him. So David's men, they put their hands on their sword, and they go, David, we can deal with this. We can shut this guy down right now, and we can do it really fast. And they began to move towards this guy in violence, and David says, stop. No, don't touch him. Who knows? Maybe God told him to say that. Maybe God knows I need to hear the other side of what some people think about me. Just let him go. Don't, you know, and, and this guy's like, are you going to kill me? And he goes, no, you know what? I'm not going to kill you today. I'm not going to do that. Well, you fast forward in this point in time, and David says, you remember that guy? I'm not going to kill him, but I think you should. <laughs> he said, I, I think you should, you know, his, you know, his time card's up. He's, he's been on grace for a while. Um, he's going to threaten your kingdom. He's not a good guy to keep around. He said, I'm not telling you what to do, but I am saying if I were you, I would send him to an early grave. So bear in mind, both David and Solomon, they're anointed to serve as the kings in Israel. And like all rulers, and this is the, what the Bible says in Romans 13, all rulers and authorities are accountable to the Lord for how they use their power, particularly their military power. It was their job to do justice for the people. So keep this in mind as well. David was the divinely anointed king. And any assault against him was an assault. It was a rebellion against the kingdom itself. So even though David had repeatedly refused to lift his hand against King Saul, who was ungodly and leading the nation in a terrible direction, he knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed, so he wouldn't touch him. He said, I will not attack him. It's not just a personal matter. It's a national, it's a kingdom issue. And I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So the instructions that, that David gave about Joab, Barzillai, and, and Shimei were kingdom-minded instructions. So here's what you need to do. Um, they had undermined the kingly plans. They had cursed his royal dignity. They had hurt the nation. As he says, for the peace and the security of Israel, for the entire kingdom, um, you need to deal with these violent men. This is going to come back to haunt you. He said, it's not just for your own honor. Uh, and David said, it's not just about me. And I think this shows this is desperately important for us uh, to serve the king's anointed, the Lord's anointed king. And as David lays dying, this great choice these people were faced with that we've talked about for the last couple of weeks is whether they would serve the true king in the kingdom 
or whether they would go after another king. And that's the same decision we face. There is for every uh, loyal servant of the Lord who swears allegiance to Jesus this decision. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's not accidental language that he was using. It was not just a poetic way of saying it. No, he said, you're faced with the same decision. Will you seek the kingdom of God? And if you do, there will be blessing. If you seek his righteousness, he said, all these things will unfold. All these blessings will come to you. They'll be added to you. So let's go back and consider what David said about the spirituality of Solomon's life. Of all the commandments that the old king gave, I think these were the dearest and the most precious and what he had worked through in his mind when Solomon walked into the room that day. And you just feel his father's heart when he said, be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, and his rules and his testimonies as it's all written in the law of Moses. David wanted the same thing for Solomon that every father wants for his son. He wanted Solomon to be a man. He wanted him to be strong. David defined manhood very differently than a way a lot of men will define that. Some people think it's about physical strength or you know, achievements in, in this place or that place and in, in professional status or in sports or in financial achievements and independence. Well, that, you know, that's what makes a man. And if we live for those things, we waste our lives. Because what makes a man, David's definition, what he tells Solomon, and what I share with you, if you're a dad or a son, it's what makes a man is obedience to the Word of God. The way for Solomon to show that he was a man was to keep God's laws and to walk in God's ways. So we have these, there's these famous last words that David uses. And within that, he uses seven different terms to describe the Word of God. Do you kind of get an idea of how important this is for him? He calls it a charge or a law. He refers to God's ways, his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies. All of these terms come from the Word of God itself, the way it describes itself. David's point is in using all these different terms, he wants his son to be really clear that every word that comes from the mouth of God is important and will affect your life. He's telling Solomon, there is not one situation you're going to face in your personal life or as a king in your public life that the Word of God cannot influence and change and impact. And the same is true for us. It'll affect you as a student, as a business person, as a homemaker, as a boyfriend, as a girlfriend, as a husband, a wife, a father, a son. It just has, it's amazing uh, the impact that it can have when we understand and apply biblical principles. So that was true for Solomon, and it's true for us. The Word of God puts everything in the right perspective when we live by the book. 1 Kings 2, 3 and 4 says this, and this, is, this was what David told him, that you may prosper in whatever you do, all that you do, 
And wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, walk before me in, excuse me, in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. God is saying, you're going to be blessed with more wisdom and more wealth than almost anybody ever in the history of the world. And as long as you're obedient to the word of God, you're going to be successful. And that same principle holds true today. For Solomon, there is this unique and this added blessing, this unique uh, implication that was for the salvation of the world, that Messiah would come through his line, that it would be something different that God does. Now, the thing about this promise and that scripture that was interesting to me was that it's conditional. If Solomon obeyed, then David's throne would be established. Solomon, you need to obey. But then it was unconditional. He made these other promises that the house of David, it was not conditional. In fact, back in, in 2 Samuel 7, 16, I'll just read this. He says, your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So it's kind of like it's conditional and then it's unconditional. And that's the way it unfolds for us. There are some unconditional promises that God gives you. Your security as a follower of Jesus is set and sealed. It's not conditional on, well, did you sin today or did you fall or how did you? Know? No, he says, that's unconditional. You're mine. You're my child. There are other promises that you could list. And it's just like, that's unconditional. But then there are these promises that God gives to the believer that are conditional, unconditional and conditional. He tells Solomon, this is going to happen. Messiah, Jesus is going to be born through this line. This kingdom is going to be established forever. That's done. Now, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be successful, here are some conditions. Christian, it's the same for us. You can be a follower of Jesus and think, well, why am I not being blessed? I don't understand. I don't feel that intimacy you're talking about. I don't feel that connection. It's the word of God. It's the principles uh, that we follow. And these questions are all answered in the gospel of Jesus. He is the final uh, son of David. Now, the sad truth is, and we'll find out later, that Solomon, um, like his father in, in some ways, did not give full obedience to the word of God. It hurt him, and as you read his story, it hurt the kingdom. And you trace this sad decline you know, where there's idolatry and there's greed and there's immorality uh, that results. And there's this breakdown. Things begin to come apart when he stops doing that. And it's pulled back together uh, in, in Christ. In Christ. Now, we face the same decisions uh, that many of these people in scriptures face. Sometimes when you read the Bible and you think, yeah, well, those are all like Bible characters. Those men and women were in unique situations. And we look back and it's almost like when you watch a movie or you read a book and you kind of know what they should do or what's going to happen or the plot, and you think, no, don't open that door. There's a monster in there. Who would go into the basement in the middle of the night, you know, with killers loose in the woods? And they go, I'm just going to go down in the basement and get some ice. I know it's 4 a.m. and 10 people have been killed, but I'm really thirsty, you know. And, they, and you're thinking, no, don't do that. You know, the Holy Spirit functions in our life. And he just says, if you 
would obey and follow the word of God. He said, I can see how your life would play out and which directions that it would fold. The thing I love, love, love about Jesus is that he refused to waste one minute of his life. He's the only one who every minute was just stepping in sync and rhythm with God's will and with God's word in his life. I don't want to waste my life. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is not practice. This is the game. This is it. And you only get one. Don't waste your life. And if I could say there's one way you can not waste it, it's if you are a follower of Christ, if you will apply, if you will begin to read and apply uh, this to your life. There's a guy I came across recently. Dave Coffey actually is one who shared a video with me, and I want to share it with you. And it is a guy who simply uh, began to see Scripture uh, in its purity and how it changed his life. It's just a beautiful story. And as you listen to, to him, I want you uh, to begin to be ready to pull that accounting of how much scripture you read last week. And I know last week may not be fair. It's just a snapshot. You think, wow, the week before I did so much or, you know, I understand. I understand that. It's just a tool. I'm just trying to get you to think about this. Listen to this and I'll ask you another question in just a couple of minutes. I was raised in a home that did not know Christ, but my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. You see, I had a secret, though, that I kept hidden through high school, college, and even the Marine Corps reserves. But when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and I started dental school, I no longer kept it a secret, and I lived openly as a homosexual in the gay community. It was at that point that I decided to go home to Chicago and break the news to my parents, and I told them, I am gay. This devastated my mother, who was not yet a Christian, and she actually had resolved to end her life. But praise God, God saved her through the word of a little pamphlet that shared with her that all of us are sinners, and yet in spite of our sin, the God of the universe still loves us. And God opened up the eyes of her heart to see that just as God can love her, she could love me in spite of the fact that I was living as a gay man. So my mother surrendered her life to Christ, and within a few months, my father did as well. Spending most of my free time in the gay clubs, I, went, I, I began experimenting with drugs. And this whole time, I tried to live this double life. I also began selling drugs. And I tried to live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But four months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So I moved to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. And I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. My parents had no idea that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs. But they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And my mother would try to reach out to me with the love of Christ, send me Christian cards every other day, fill them with paragraphs of scripture, and sign the bottom of it, love you forever. Mom. 
and I never read those cards and simply toss them to trash. My parents one time flew to Atlanta to visit me, and after the second day, I kicked them out. My dad, though, before he left, wanted to give me something, and it was his very first Bible. He left it on my kitchen counter, and as soon as they left, I took his Bible, and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God, and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors, they began to cry out to God for me. My mother began to pray a very bold prayer, which was, God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. Whatever it takes. She fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would literally spend hours every morning in her prayer closet on her knees interceding on my behalf. She knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. And so I tried calling home, and I dreaded making that phone call. But my mother's first words were, are you okay? No condemnation, just words of unconditional love and grace. Romans 2.4 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. As she hung up that phone, she knew she had to do just as that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them. One by one, she ripped off a little piece of adding machine tape and wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before, and he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings, and today this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Three days later, as I was walking around the cell block, I passed by a garbage can. And as I look at this garbage can, I realized that my life was so much like this garbage. I was now surrounded by common criminals, trash. And with my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can, but something on top of that trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book and read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. 
But let me be honest with you, I did not think that this was the answer to all my problems. I thought I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have here in this book is not just ink on paper. What we have here is the very and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin and my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things could not get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was calling in the nurse's office. I knew something wasn't right. She sat me down, uncomfortably struggling with the words. So she wrote something on a piece of paper, and she slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than 10 years to life. But news of my HIV status was like a death sentence. As I lay in my bunk one night, I looked up at the metal bed above me and I saw something scribbled. And it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. At the most hopeless point in my life, God used the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still had a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me, but he gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next. My transformation was gradual and God was convicting me of my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs, but he completely delivered me from that with a few months. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. As I continued to read the scriptures, I realized that my, that my identity should not be defined by my feelings or my sexuality. My identity is not gay or homosexual or even heterosexual for that matter, but my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. You see, God says, be holy, for I am holy. I had always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality, but I realized that the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. And God was telling me, don't focus upon your sexuality or your feelings, but focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. As I began living this life of obedience, God revealed his plan for my life, and he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison. And so I called home collect to my parents and I told them of my interest to go to Bible college and asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of in Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed me the application. I quickly filled it out till I got to the bottom where they asked me for references from people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. 
the only people I could find was a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody Bible Institute. So the greatest miracle is that Moody actually accepted me. <laughs> I was released from prison in July of 2001, started the very next month, graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to get my Master of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School. I'm working on my doctorate from Bethel Seminary, and I just published a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, and God has such a sense of humor because now I'm back at Moody teaching in the Bible department. I went from prisoner to professor. The Word of God changes lives. How much time did you spend last week in the Word of God? 20 minutes? An hour? Some of your sheets say zero. For God to change your life, you've got to open your heart and your eyes to the Word of God. Will you commit today, now, to this week, opening up the Word? It'll do so much more for you than anything I'm going to say or anyone else is going to say about the Bible. Would you stand, please? Look at your sheet. If you've got a number, I'm going to ask that maybe you would pray about this. God, I want to double this number. This week I spent an hour. The entire week I spent one hour reading your word. This week I'm going to do two. Monday I spent ten minutes. I spent five minutes reading. That's all I did. It was five minutes. This Monday, tomorrow, I'm going to spend ten minutes. Would you double it? Just read scripture. That's all I'm asking you to do. Will you begin? I'm going to kneel in just a moment and I'm going to make a commitment to the Lord. I'm going to double what I read last week. I want the Word of God to have opportunity to change and to impact my life. I love the part of the story where he's lying there and he looks up and someone had scratched. If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29:11. How many times were you bored this week? That began to change in a, just his life in such a beautiful way. Let's do that. Let's just see. Just try, what if you did it for a month? Just see what a difference it will make. What have you got to lose? Father, I thank you for today, and I pray that you would draw us to your word. I thank you for David's last words, how powerful they were. And this king, the greatest king, I think, earthly king that ever lived was David. And the final advice, the one thing that he tells his son is to read, listen, and obey the Word of God. It'll change you. It'll change the kingdom. Father, for him to say that it must be incredibly important, I commit to you today to read and to apply your Word to my life. And I ask, Father, that you would move the Spirit in the hearts of people around me. We would do this together. In Jesus' name, for your glory.